0: Well, Peace Church, today is the day that the Lord has made. So let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen? Amen. 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 I want to say a quick hello to those who are joining us remotely and online. My name is Ryan Kimmel. I'm the lead pastor here at Peace Church. And to everybody I say, good morning to you. So when I was 16 years old, just got my driver's license, I was actually sitting at the light there in Middleville. And I was coming up from the river and I was sitting on that like incline facing west, and I I don't know why I distinctly have, I mean, I distinctly have this memory that I was sitting there and I was thinking about the Bible. I had not yet truly professed a personal faith in Jesus at that point. But I remember thinking about the Bible, and I said to myself, seems like a pretty okay book. But I think I'm gonna take what I like and I'm just gonna leave the rest. Now I know I know Christians who both actually still say that. And I know Christians who live like that. But as I sat there and I thought, I'll take what I want and I'll leave the rest. Let me, let me ask you, I mean, like, was I right to do that? Votie Bachman is a uh, very amazing Christian author, pastor, theologian, teacher, husband, father. I mean, this guy's the, the total package. And he was given a lecture at a college and I was watching this lecture, and he, he asked this. He said, the most important question a Christian can ask is, why the Bible? Why the Bible? If the Bible is, in fact, the Word of God, then it is the authority. If the Bible is the Word of God, then it is the authority. And everything from human morality to scientific discovery is subservient, That word. So is the Bible the word of God? And here's the issue that we have to face. If something is the highest authority, to what authority do you appeal to warrant those claims? For instance, like when God Himself says, I am God, and we respond by saying, like, well, who says? Or by whose authority? I mean, God says, because I say so, because he is God, because he is the highest authority. So if we say the Bible is the highest authority, to what authority do we appeal to substantiate those claims? Because if we appeal to another authority, well, that would be the higher authority. So in a sense, we have to look to the Bible to see if it stands under the weight of its own claims, to see if the Bible is the word of God. This isn't circular reasoning. We don't want to infer anything upon the Bible that the Bible itself doesn't say about itself. Do you follow me? If you don't, hopefully you will soon. I wanna show you uh, a beautiful picture of the interplay of the Bible with itself. Now what you see here at the bottom is all these, these little jagged lines down here, those are all the different chapters of the Bible. And this picture gives you a beautiful representation of how much the Bible speaks about itself. How much it relies upon itself. How much it refers to itself. It is constantly interweaving this same story. And so with this, I'm going to read this morning 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. I encourage you to turn there in your own Bibles if you have one. Real quickly, this is where the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Timothy to the young pastor named Timothy, and it highlights here the critical nature of scriptures in the calling of not just a pastor, but the life of all Christians. So follow along, it'll be up on the screen. Here we go. Hear the word of God. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out and profit, uh, breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now this as I hope as I hope you'll see is the word of God. So let's pray and hopefully we'll see why. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, you spoke reality into existence by your word you have established all things and by your word that we read today you give us hope you give us knowledge of salvation through your son Jesus and by it Lord you reveal yourself to us through the power of the Holy Spirit and it's in Jesus name that we pray these things and everyone said amen amen so here's the question let's start with what is the Bible?" What is this thing that we have in our laps? Simply put, the Bible is the word of God, compiled from a collection of writings into one book that is inspired, inerrant, and infallible, and because it's those three things, it is authoritative. The Bible did not descend from heaven leather-bound and printed in China. It was not dictated by an angel to someone sitting in a cave. It was not secretly decoded from gold plates. The Bible sprung from the grassroots of history as God guided writers who wrote in their own language from their own cultural context. The Bible, it's rather an oddly organic book. But that's our God. He meets us where we are, and he works with who we are. Broken, frail as we are, broken, frail, as we are. And we see that the stories of the Bible are unflatteringly honest about the state of humanity and our fallenness into sin. It does not paint a pretty picture for us, but yet through it all, the Bible continually highlights the fact that each person carries with them the weight and the dignity of being made in the image of God. And therefore we all, every single one of us, no matter what creed or religion, all of us bear the image of God and have equal value. The Bible, is divided into two primary parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, testament is just the Latin translation of the word for covenant. We talk about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Covenant is to be understood as God's great promise to us and the way that he relates to us, by his covenantal promises, by which he reveals himself and pulls, and both pulls us into relationship with himself. He is not just the God of commands and commandments. He is the God of promises and relationships. The Old Testament has 39 different books that tell the turbulent history of God's people and how they keep breaking this covenantal promise. And they do this primarily by by not keeping their distinctiveness from the world. They keep breaking these covenantal promises because they keep assimilating into the cultures around them. And yet God sees this rebellion. He sees this constant turning away from his goodness to the ways of the world, and yet he loves them still, and he keeps his promises. The world that they keep giving themselves to is the world that they were meant to be a light to. And this grand story unfolds through historical accounts, through writings of wisdom and poetry and song. This happens through prophecy. But the thread of the Old Testament, that thing that is constantly woven through every story, the thing that ties all these random stories together is the covenantal faithfulness of God, that God continues to work out his plan for the world even amidst a people who continually reject him. And with the birth of Jesus Christ, we see the pieces set in motion for the promised new covenant, for the New Testament to be ushered in. Now, Jesus is what the Old Testament points towards, and Jesus is what the New Testament points at. Jesus himself says this in John chapter 5, verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Jesus points to himself. And so the New Testament, we have 27 books that detail the life of Jesus and his new covenant teachings, which go to shape the formation of the Christian church and the Christian faith. Now, the New Testament is a mix also of historical accounts, of organic personal letters. There's parables, there's prophetic revelation, there's even some hymns in the New Testament. The Bible is 66 books spanning over 2,000 years. It was written on three different continents in three different languages. Nearly every different genre of literature is represented from from history to poetry to narrative to prophecy to parables to eyewitness accounts to investigation to personal letters by 40 different authors, people of extreme, diverse cultural settings, and by people of various social standing from kings to prophets to religious leaders to your everyday citizens. The Bible is a book whose historical accounts have been constantly criticized. But with over 1,500 archaeological digs dedicated to the Bible, not one has disproven the Bible's history. In fact, they've only gone to further affirm the biblical accounts from references to King David, to the governor Quirinius, to the existence of the Hittites. What people first thought the Bible made up, we are constantly discovering to be true historical fact. So let me summarize. 2,000 years, 66 books, 40 authors of diverse social and religious standing, three continents, three languages, numerous literary styles, and various cultural settings, and yet one consistent message. How? Because there's actually one guiding author. One consistent message, how are we able to see this? It's because there is only one ultimate author and we find it with the words, thus saith the Lord. In fact, our our scripture that we read, we started off, says this. says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed out. I love this real, gritty, organic imagery. Just breathed out. It wasn't dictated or demanded, but God exhaled it. He breathed it out, meaning that he is the true origin of scriptures. It originates and it emanates from his good will. But how, how did it actually happen? I mean, that's, that's beautiful imagery and all, but, but how did this actually happen? Well, I think Peter, Peter gives us even more clarity here. Peter writes and he says, "...for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man." But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Scripture is the message of God. And those who conveyed this message were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You carry things to bring them somewhere. And so in order to bring forth the word of God, the Holy Spirit carried men in their own language. But yet it was still a message that was breathed out by God. What we would say is that it is inspired by God. Not from an emotional state, but from a spiritual state. That the Holy Spirit filled, formed, guided the writers. He carried them as they wrote in their own language, with their own slang. See, in the Old Testament, when a prophet said the words, thus saith the Lord, that was a life or death statement. Meaning, if a prophet claimed that something was from the Lord and it wasn't, he was to be killed. A prophet only claim something from the Lord if he was willing to die for it. So, So God speaks to men, and by his spirit, he carries them along, and he does this over the course of a couple hundred years with a select people at certain times. But how did it get compiled into what we have here now? I mean, how did we get the Bible? Well, the, the Old Testament was meticulously passed down through sacred texts throughout the ages because the words proved to be true and proved to be trustworthy accounts of Jewish history and prophecies and peoples. And we know now because of, the Dead, because of the Dead Sea Scrolls that the complete Old Testament was not just intact before the time of Christ, but the Old Testament that we read here and now is the same one that Christ read from and the same one that generations before him read from. It has not changed. But what about? The New Testament. Again, the writers of the New Testament, they sought to write faithful accounts of the life and the teachings of Jesus, faithful instructions to his teachings as the church began to grow after his life, death, and resurrection. But why those 27 books? Why those ones? Well, when we talk about what books are to be included in the Bible, we talk about the term canon. Canon. Not something that fires a cannonball, but canon is the Greek word that just simply meant like measuring rod. It meant read. So the canon is like the things that need to be measured up to to be included. It's the set of criteria which needs to be met in order for writings to be included in the Bible. And they included things like we know who the author was, that it was written by an apostle or a close associate of the apostle. Like for instance, the gospel of Mark. Mark was a disciple of Peter himself. So you could say that Mark's gospel is actually Peter's gospel. It was within one generation of the life of Jesus. Thus also affirming it was by an apostle or a close associate. That the theology, that the message is consistent. And that there's recognition from the universal church that saw and felt the weight of these as God's inspired word. And so within one generation of Jesus, the New Testament was complete. And these writings were spread to all the churches as the church spread. And this continued for a couple hundred years. But they were consistent with Old Testament, Old Covenant writings. All these writings were. They were faithful to the teachings of Jesus through the apostles. And because they had the power of the Holy Spirit behind them, we continually see how useful they continue to be, and those that, books that claim to be from the apostle fell short of having that weight and were quickly removed from history. There is no other book like the Bible, the best-selling book of all time, dwarfs its next best competitor. There's no other holy book like the Bible in its history, in the length of time it In the length of time for it to uh, to be brought to completion. There's no other book with the diversity of authors, or even in the arc of the grand storyline. There is no other book like the Bible. It has no similarity, it has no comparison. You can compare the Vedas writing of the Hindus with the writings of Islam. One person saying this is the word of God, but there's nothing like the Bible. There's no other religious holy book like this. But as the church grew and as the church spread out and then as the church became more structured and formalized, the early leaders knew that they had to affirm with one voice which writings held true to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. A book could not just say this is from God and automatically be included in the Bible, nor did a sinister group of men meet in secret to kick out what books they didn't like and keep the ones that they did. That's not how it worked. I want to read to you a snippet from a book that I had to read in college. It's called Church History in Plain Language. It's great. If you are at all interested in church history, that's, that's the one to read. It says this. It says, The first time that we see a complete, written, compiled list of the books of the New Testament, that we have them today, came in an Easter letter in 367 by Bishop Athanasius from Alexandria. Shortly shortly thereafter, councils in North Africa at Hippo and Carthage published the same list. Those were in 393 and 397, respectively. In one sense, of course, Christians created the canon. Their decisions concerning the books were part of history. But in another sense, however, they were only recognizing those writings whose authority were already felt in the churches, the shape of the New Testament shows that the early church's primary aim was to submit fully to the teachings of the apostles. Because remember, they got the commission from Jesus to go into all the world and to teach what he taught. Again, for me, the Bible is an oddly organic book and how it arose through history. But this is also what I love about it, that God guided certain people at certain times to write revelation about himself and his will, that God uses words. Simple, fragile words, yet holding eternal truth. True revelation of love, true revelation of the will of God, but yet fragile words compiled into a book that deteriorates and falls apart. In prep for this message, we asked people to submit questions. Now, some of the questions that we got uh, weren't really dealing with the nature of the Bible. We got some great questions about specifics of theology that I, I would love to take some time to answer, but that's not the focus of this morning. I'm going to focus on those questions that, that we got that really dealt with the nature of the Bible, because that's where we want to stay this morning. So given that, let me, let me see what I can answer based on some questions that we got as we compile these together. One of the questions that we got was, I understand the history of the Bible, but what if I still don't believe it's the word of Almighty God? Essentially, that they don't believe that it's truth. Here's what I'd say. I can't make you believe anything. I don't want to make you believe anything, and I certainly don't want to trick you into believing anything but I do believe that just as the Holy Spirit worked within the words of the writers, the Holy Spirit also needs to work in the hearts of the readers. And I think Peter picks up on this. Going back to the, what we read a little bit earlier, 2 Peter, verses, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in dark places until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit being these are the words of God, and that the Holy Spirit is the acting agent. That makes the Bible a spiritual book. And so, of course, there needs to be a spiritual element when we read it. The Holy Spirit needs to work in the hearts of those who seek God as they read his word, confirming it. The Bible cannot simply be a purely intellectual or emotional thing. It has to be a spiritual encounter when you read the Bible, where you meet with God and you see the power of the Spirit and you hear the voice of the Spirit in the words that you read. Another question we got is, uh, since we don't have the original documents, which is true, since we don't have the original documents, how do we know that it hasn't changed over time? Now, this is a question dealing with trust. Can we trust the Bible? So let me say this as quickly as I can. The Dead Sea Scrolls. They show us that the Old Testament that we are using is the same one that Jesus used and believed. Okay, but what about the New Testament? How do we know that that hasn't changed over time? There are plenty of reasons that we know the New Testament hasn't changed over time. Number one, there is no other historical document that even comes remotely close to the number of early copies the Bible has. We can can cross-reference thousands of early documents to see what is actually a very unnerving consistency. And for me, when we cross-reference all these thousands of early manuscripts, the consistency behind them is is almost eerie. How would this happen without the supernatural work of the Spirit behind them? Also, in the first couple hundred years of the church, the early church fathers, meaning the early church leaders and the early church historians, they loved to read and write and comment on the New Testament. In fact, just based on the quotations of the early church fathers, we have all but 11 of the verses of the New Testament. Meaning, based just on their early commentaries alone, we know that we have the same New Testament that they read from. Of all the critiques to the Bible, to think that the Bible has changed over time, is not an argument that really has any weight to it. Another question we got is why do we say that the Bible is inspired, inerrant, and infallible? So we say inspired, and this is so critical for Christians to understand. When we say the Bible is inspired, it's not because we believe that the authors were emotionally moved by the love of God or something like that. Inspired means that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author. That's what we mean when we say that the writers were carried along by the Holy Spirit, that he inspired, that he filled them, that he formed the writings that came to be known as the Bible. So if God is the ultimate author, then it can have no errors, meaning it's inerrant, meaning it's right in what it accounts for and what it recounts in its intended meaning, in its intended meaning. Meaning, you can't just point to some obscure reference in the Old Testament when it says, like, something, there was 14,000 Philistines, and say, oh, really? There was exactly 14,000? Because if there wasn't, then the Bible's got errors. And that's where you have to understand. Like, you have to read the Bible in its intended meaning. When it says that, it wasn't meant to give you an exact number. It was to talk about the size of the armies that the Israelites were facing. You have to read the Bible in its intended meaning. In its intended meaning, there is no... Error. So what about the word infallible? Infallible. To say something is infallible means that it is unbreakable. That it doesn't change or expire or break. And we talk about inerrancy like it's this big grand thing. I mean, listen to me. A phone book can be inerrant. If you don't know what a phone book is, just ask your grandparents. (laughs) But a phone book can go outdated. It can be inerrant when it was published, but over time it is fallible. It will go outdated. That is what we. To say something that uh, is fallible, to say something is fallible means that it's failable. And the Bible cannot fail. The Bible is infallible. Again, it's constantly, historically, being proven true. And so, being the Word of God that is inspired, inerrant, and infallible, that means it's authoritative the authoritative word of God over our life and our faith practice. And I would pray that spiritually we are drawn to read it. Here's a very particular question. How do do we pick a translation then? What's a good translation to use? So by way of reference, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. And throughout, there's sprinkling of Aramaic in there. And so we have to translate the Bible into English. When you translate something, a few things happen. You have to translate the words and the thought being conveyed there. For instance, if you were to translate the New Testament word for word in the exact order, in the sentence order that we have, our, that we have the manuscripts in, you would basically sound like a drunk Yoda. It'd be very hard to understand this is where we need to understand the thought that is being conveyed and we take that thought with the words used and we reconstruct this into an English sentence. If you go too much word for word, again, it's, it's confusing and it's almost unreadable. But if you go just simply thought for thought, well then you're, you're getting away from the actual words that God used to convey his message. So we have to find this great blend of something that is both word-for-word, that uses the words that the Bible uses, but also truly conveys the thought behind it. Because remember, God used words to reveal himself. Words are critical. This is why we at Peace Church, we choose to use the English Standard Version. On the word-for-word, thought-for-thought spectrum, it leans word for word, but it still encapsulate the thoughts of the writers in a very readable way. And some of you may say, well, can we use other translations? Certainly you can. We're not legalistic about the ESV here. But honestly, I would probably ask you to steer away from paraphrases as your primary source of consuming scripture. Things like the message or the, uh, or the passion, I don't use those for personal study or for preaching. Reading those is kind of like watching a movie instead of reading the book you kind of get an idea what's going on but there's so much more clarity in history when you read the book you know what i'm talking about right that's why I, i tend to ask to people to stay away from paraphrases not that they can't be helpful or useful in their own right but we have to remember that god used words so we have to make sure that we're reading the right words with those paraphrases, there was no translation by a committee pouring over the syntax and the words and the language being used. These were simply written by one person trying to capture something about these writings. Some, some of you might say, well, that sounds very confusing. Then why don't we just go back and read the good old King James? Well, aside from the fact that we don't speak in the King James English, since the King James was translated in the 1600s, over the past 400 years, we've actually found, through digging and archaeology, we've found older manuscripts than what the King James translation was based on. Those who, uh, those who translated the King James used later manuscripts that sometimes included words and verses that we don't find in the earliest of the manuscripts. That's why sometimes you'll see the King James have verses that later translations have taken out. It's not because newer, modern translations are trying to be less faithful. It's actually because they're trying to be more faithful to what the original documents would have said. Because if we're going to call this thing the Word of God, then we better make sure that the words in there are from God. Now listen, I'm not ragging on the King James. Love it often you'll see me quote from it because I think it does, does translate things into English in ways that I wish some of the modern translations would. But we don't use that because it doesn't rely on the earliest documents that we have. And actually, in the evolution of translations, the ESV is kind of like a great-grandson of the King James. Anyway, words are incredibly important for any communication, but all the more when we say something is the word of God. So when we have the Bible and we read from it and we claim to the world that this is the word of God, again, we better make sure that this is the actual words from God because all scripture is breathed out by God. If it's not breathed out by God, we're not gonna call it the word of God. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable, is useful, is good for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, how we're meant to live. That the man of God, that the messenger of God, ladies, this goes for you just as much as it goes for the guys, that the person of God, that the Christian may be complete and equipped for every good work. When we read the Bible, it is useful for teaching us not just to encourage us, but to correct us and to train us in righteousness so that we can be not just religious people, so that we could be ready people, people who are ready for the call and command of God, people who are ready to share his word, people who are ready to live out the love of God that he has so graciously graciously given to us. And this comes when we read the Bible and the Holy Spirit who inspired it also makes it alive in our hearts. It is a spiritual act and it is a spiritual encounter. And so when we read the Bible, when you read the Bible, treat it as that moment, that holy moment. That's why here at Peace, scripture reading is important for us. We'll say, here's the word of the Lord, here's the word of the Lord, and we'll read a scripture. And then when we're done, we'll pray over it. God bless the churches that are faithful ministering that maybe weave scripture throughout their message, but for us, scripture is gonna be centralized. We're gonna start with it, read it, pray over it, ready our hearts, and then expound upon it. I mean, that's where we have to just ask ourselves. I mean, like, if you have your Bible, would you mind just grabbing it? Go ahead, use your phone too, if that's what you got. I mean, i just hold this thing for a moment. It is kind of overwhelming how underwhelming this thing is. in the sense that this is, this is a book. It weighs as much as any other book on my shelf. I mean, I've had this, this, uh, this one since I think 2010. It's starting to fall apart already. It just seems like such a fragile thing. Like this, If this is the Word of God, shouldn't it be like written on the side of a mountain or something? But yet, this is how God works. This is how our God works. He uses broken, frail things to convey his message us and this thing that will deteriorate. But yet, it still holds truths that outlast any culture that is read from this book. It holds a picture of love that no one in all the romance stories, and all the literature, and all of history, could never even come close to living up to. This thing is an oddly organic book, but yet it is so spiritually profound. Because this is how real and gritty God wants to be with us. That he would use the strength of his word in such a fragile object. He would get this close to us by the power of his word. When you read this thing, ask the Spirit to read it to you. In your hearts, no other book has the power to do what the Bible has the power to do. So don't sit there and choose which parts you like and what parts you you don't like, thus making yourself the highest authority. Sit under something that is meant for your good, that tells a better story. Read this, let it correct you, let it complete you with the knowledge of who you are and the knowledge of who God is and his love for us and his plan for us that is made manifest in his son Jesus, which this thing is all about. There is so much more I wish I could say right now. But thankfully, we got a life journey ahead of us, and I pray that you continue to dive into this thing. Let it form and saturate who you are, because it is good. Amen, let's pray.